0: I'm Anthony Walsh, and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, a show where we empower you with tools to optimize your health, your happiness, and your longevity. Today, I am super thrilled to have a very special guest joining us, Mr. Daryl Impey, in his last year as a professional cyclist. He is the former Yellow Jersey Mayo Jean in the Tour de France. In fact, I think he was the first South African to ever wear the yellow jersey in the Tour de France. He's finishing out his final season this year, riding with Israel Premier Tech. He is, as I mentioned, a South African native. His career has been unbelievable, action-packed all the way through. Highlights, if you had to pick some of them out, Tour de France stage wins. He's also represented South Africa on many, many occasions, Olympic Games and Commonwealth games, but in addition to all those accolades and achievements on the bike, he's known throughout the peloton and the larger world of cycling for his professionalism, his dedication, and his sportsmanship. Here's a little taste of
1: what awaits you today. The yellow jersey is like the holy grail you know, um, of cycling, and besides being like the first African and South African, it was more like I joined the club, you know, but I felt like guys... Like more looked after each other. You know, we used to speak on the start line. We used to shake each other's hands. We used to like. Now it's like you stay in your team. You can't sit in with the peloton if you're not all behind your teammates. It's like a bullshit rule. Everyone thinks they're the you know the best rider in the world, and they've come and they've got a job to do. And you know the best answer people can tell you is like if you tell them they've done something wrong. Like you just come up to a rider and say, "Listen, mate, what you did there was like could have gone really pear shaped," you know. Next time, maybe don't do that. Their, their simple answer is just, fuck you, you know? It's like, but if that's the attitude of everybody, then we're gonna go nowhere. Darryl Impi, what's going on? Not much, man. Just uh, I've actually just knocked out five hours out of mental game. Mental back and forth the whole day, actually. So I've I've I haven't had the best run into the races that I've actually really liked. So, and with it being the final part of my career or well, final year, it's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster this last three months, to be honest.
0: Are you still motivated to go out and do a five-hour ride, or is there a you know you live in Girona, so you're kind of lucky enough with the weather, but it's not always sunny. So do you look out the window and just go, I just couldn't be arsed doing five hours in this bad weather?
1: Ah. Uh, you know, like the the only thing that's actually keeping me going is like I know how hard it is to race, to be at those level, and <laughs> how bad it can backfire in the race by not training. Um, so, so that's so that's the real that's the real motivator for me at the moment. Is like there's times, of course, I wake up and I go, oh, I don't feel like doing this five hours, or I don't feel like these kind of efforts, or geez, it's the last time I'm ever gonna have to probably do efforts like this or so get it done. But it's more like. Knowing that I go to a race, and if I haven't done the work, it's kind of that's the something that's pushing me to like do the job because there's nothing worse than you know seeing guys in the final years of their career and just hanging at the back and just getting spat every day. So um, it's hard because uh, like my motivation used to be I always used to be the guy that was counted on in the end, and now uh, it's not that they don't count on me. I kind of want less pressure. but myself, I'm having the battle with, like, Half of me is saying like, you don't want all the stress, you don't want everything. And then the other half is saying like, oh, you should be there, you know, like you, you you were always there and why aren't you there? So it's like oh, a bit of an up and down period actually.
0: But it seems like, and you know, we'll get into some of your achievements and sort of France yellows and stuff through the course of the conversation, but it, it seems like you've gone out the very best way it's possible to go out at the end of the season. Like going out on your terms, not going out with like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do another year. And then you just can't get a contract and you kinda, of, you know, become a gravel rider.
1: <laughs> exactly. Like like there comes a time where you gotta realize like what the sacrifices are to be a pro, pro cyclist and to to keep up with kind of to keep up with the Joneses in cycling. You know, keep up with the guys that are setting the bar. And things change your life. You also you have a family, and you you grow as a person, and you have more responsibilities in other other parts of your life. And to do all these things, to be as competitive as your as your competition, it's like and now it's becoming such a a thing of staying at altitude, more time away from home, more sacrifices. And as you as you know, and as you, as as I'm sure you've seen other riders that over the years there's just no more space for kind of doing all those sacrifices once you like a father and things like that so it, it makes it pretty tough when you know like oh to be at that level to be winning i know i should be at altitude for three weeks longer and um and yeah when i'm when i know i'm not willing to put in those sacrifices anymore or i'm not able to put in those sacrifices because the tank's starting to run on empty then it's you know then the reality is there kind of like well instead of just being that guy that gets told he's not good enough um rather be rather go out and say well i've had a good run and my time is up do you think it's uh,
0: your physical body what are you now 38 39 years old do you think 38. It's the, is it the physical aging process that is the reason someone would have to walk away or is it the other stuff that he accumulate as a 38 year old like responsibilities family little bit of you know mental fatigue from having to just do the same thing year after year
1: I think there's lots of things that come into the equation for me is like I've had a lot of big crashes. I've had like probably like three career-ending crashes. Um, coming from back from those has been, you know, has been achievements in the own. But the final one where I broke my pelvis in 2021, that was a big one. It was a big one mentally, but it was also like really hard for the family and to see the kids uh, you know, go through it because they were older and they could understand it. And for them to see me in a wheelchair and things like that, like it was hard to erase that for me, you know. And uh, even last year when I raced the Walter, the family came to watch and they were all there just in, a, you know, in Holland, just an easy, you know, bunch sprint. And I was kind of at the back and they crashed at the back and I actually crashed in front of them all. And, uh, you know, and then I remember finishing the race and my son was in tears because I've gone through this whole thing. And I'm just not willing to take those risks that are required anymore to be um, to be at that pointy end, uh, you know. And, and it's not like I, I stop myself, but it's it's more like the oh, you're getting tired of getting hurt, man. You're like you're yeah. tired of putting yourself through that that whole um, through that mindset of like everything's gonna be okay, uh, no one's gonna make a mistake. And we we're seeing guys make more mistakes, and the crashes are bigger, the crashes are faster. And you get to a point where you probably just say, well, geez, I've, I've had enough of that now, you know?
0: Obviously, we raced at entirely different levels, but that was one of my motivations for not riding the bike full-time anymore. I think we make that kind of risk-to-return calculation in our head. And the risk for you earlier in the career, it makes sense because you're like, okay, I can get these contracts, I can have all this financial upside, this living the dream, the fame, the notoriety that goes with it. But as you get closer to the end of the career, it's like, well, I've got a lot of that stuff already. I've basically got as much out of that deal and trick as I can. Now I'm taking all the risk for limited upside. And for me, when I was quite limited talent-wise, like Continental was kind of my seal and I felt when I, you know, I'd race with guys like your teammate now, Michael Woods. Uh, He raced for Garneau-Quebec the same year I was out in Canada. I was looking at him going, we are not the same thing. Like, he is not the same creature as me. He's... He's climbing at twice the speed I am. So I was taking all the risk that guys like that were taking, but I had none of the upside potential because I was never going to step up to world tour. So when I had one or two big crashes, I was like, you know what? It's it's just not worth the risk to reward ratio. Have you started assessing that differently as your career has progressed?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think the you know I've always I've never really struggled to come back. I've always wanted to come back and. Even when I broke my pelvis, I was like, I need to come back because I you know I have a you know, I have this certain responsibility. I've come to Israel, Premier Tech, to to do a certain job and now I'm not able to do it. So there was always this like like it was just natural for me to to come back. But the the part that you actually don't actually, you know, that you actually don't put together is when it's once you've done it, once you are back in it and the toll it's actually taken on your body to get there, you actually kind of While you're doing it, you feel like oh everything's okay, but then there comes a point where you just feel like oh hold on a second, like I've come from far back, I've I'm back where I am, but geez, what what toll has it taken on me? And I think that's kind of I think why this year I wanted to just like take a little bit of a step back to to get out of that. Like even if it was like the team knows, like I didn't want to be in the pointy end. I wanted to rather help. I wanted to pass on like wisdom to guys like Corbin Strong and things like that, um, and and guide those guys instead. Like. And I think they kind of got that part where they were like, okay, maybe he's he's just reached a point where he's like tired of sinking his teeth into the, the I call it the death zone or the peloton, because it's like, you know, it, it is, does feel like that sometimes. Um, so I, I think that's, that's part of one of those aspects that we we're talking about. But then there's so many, yeah, there's so many things that make you realize like that it should be, you know, the thing is like, I feel good about it. You know, there's no bitterness, there's no anything like that. It's more about, uh, yeah, I think I'm nervous about what's after cycling but then I'm also like chuffed at what I've achieved um over the course of my career.
0: Cuz I look at the fight in there like a few weeks ago for Milan Sanremo, you look at the fight into the bottom of the Cipressa and I'm just like there's nothing about that that I'm jealous or envious about. That just looks stressful and dangerous. What's that like to to still be in that fight for position there? Cause we're hearing from ex-pros all the time. Like I talked to Christian Velde a couple of weeks ago and he was like, you know what, I'm glad I'm on the other side of the fence looking at it. He said from the outside, it just looks like they're taking more and more chances. There's less and less respect. Is that your interpretation
1: from the inside? Yeah, I think... There is less respect because there's the the figureheads that in our sport that could have stood up and made examples were the guys who were doing those things, jumping pavements, uh, all those kind of things. You know, and that's they were able to do those things and they got away with it. And then slowly, as the nothing happened to those guys taking those kinds of risks, it just started becoming a free for all um, because everybody got away with it. Yeah, I think particularly with the younger guys, um, we we are seeing a bit of like less respect. But it's also like when I was younger too, not that we had less respect, but I think it was more like the older guys like made us aware of like, you know, you have a spot here in the Peloton and you know where you sit and like, hey, good luck if you pull a result, that's great and you, you deserve everything. But there was almost like, you know, calm down and wait until you've proven yourself. Whereas now, <laughs> like it's just like Everyone thinks they're the you know the best rider in the world, and they've come and they've got a job to do. And you know, the best answer people can tell you is like, if you tell them they've done something wrong, like you just come up to a ride and say, "Listen, mate, what you did there was like could have gone really pear shaped," you know. Next time, maybe don't do that. Their, their simple answer is just "fuck you," you know. It's like, if that's the attitude of everybody, then we're going to go nowhere, you know. Um, and it's 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 more like, yeah, I think a lot of guys have lost that aspect of like. You know, they haven't crashed hard enough yet, whereas a lot of us have crashed hard in our careers. And it's the ones that have crashed hard that go, "Ah, I don't want to be back there because of your mistake. Um, and that's where I think uh, there is this respect thing. And there's also, I mean, together it's a whole, the, the, the whole UCI, everybody needs to kind of come to a way of trying to sort it out. But the, the, ultimately it's the bike rider's responsibility to look after each other while we're out there. But no, that's not really happening. But I mean, I want to also say, like, when I was really trying to focus on the pointy end, I didn't also get so blindsided by it all. I wasn't so like, oh, tactic, a tactic, because my my I was in like race mode. It was like, I have to be there. I have to be there. There's no other way around it. Whereas I feel like now I'm kind of like, I have to be there, but I probably I don't. I'm not the chosen son, so I don't need to really be there, you know. So and that's the like the different part of it is because like, now I'm thinking like. I have to take risks to put so and so in position, but I, I also don't need to be there actually because it's actually his responsibility to be there too. Yeah, you know, so I look at it like a little bit differently. Like now, like now, I see more danger. I guess that's that's like what I'm trying to say. I see more danger as I've got older. Like whether or not that same those same dangers were there when I was racing ten years ago, they probably were, but I felt like guys like more looked after each other. You know, we used to speak on the start line. We used to shake each other's hands we used to like now it's like you stay in your team you can't sit in with a peloton if you're not all behind your teammate it's like a bullshit rule
0: there's also a weird thing going on with where people want to take outcomes and almost not criminalise them but really condemn certain outcomes rather than looking at the consequences. And I'll I'll expand on that to say what I mean. Like, we've seen the downhill sprints with Grunewagen and Jakobsen a couple of years ago in Tour of Poland, which was absolutely ridiculous for so many reasons. The downhill sprints, those stupid barriers with the legs out. But Grunewagen deviated from his line a small bit. The consequences of it were tragic. But there's way worse deviations. We've seen Buhani, you know, basically every single bike race he's in with worse deviations from his sprint line than Grunewagen had. But Grunewagen gets punished for the consequences rather than the conduct. And again, we've seen that kid last week, or the week before in Flanders, that, you know, tries to move up on the grass, gets his front wheel caught, um, you know, takes out half the peloton, and he gets disqualified from the race. But people are jumping up on footpaths all the time. It just doesn't go wrong. I think we need to move away from saying we're only going to punish consequences and actually punish... The conduct that's leading to those consequences.
1: Yes, sadly, we're only reacting to when things go bad. I mean, the, like it should be just a standard thing. Like you go on the pavement that's not on the road, you're you're out, because it's the only way to it's the only way to stop it. I mean, uh, if you're going to go, oh well, he managed to pull it off. Uh, he wasn't so unlucky. Oh, gee, he just slipped through there. Oh, You know, oh, luckily nothing happened. Then everyone's still going to do it because I can tell you, it's so intense in the peloton right now. Nobody gives an inch. So, the only place you can pass now is actually on the pavements. So, if they're going to not do anything about it, people are going to risk. People are going to try. It's like a speeding fines. Like, you're always going to get it. Someone's going to get a speeding fine. Even if you say, listen, you can't speed over 80, they're still going to get people speeding. Um, so, there's still going to be guys pushing the limits, trying to peek through. And I, I like part of me when I first saw it, I was like, oh, what an idiot. What's he thinking? But then I'm like, well, he actually only moved up. Willens had just done the exact same move just before him. Yeah, this is the problem. Like and had enough road and jumped on. And sure, like he cocked it up this guy, and it was like the consequences were massive. But like I also go, like, well, if you're gonna throw him out of the race, you should have thrown all those guys that were on the pavement there out of the race. Because like they all made it just with enough time. But I mean, it's it's so difficult these days with Directors shouting at you, get to the front, get to the front, and everyone's just so desperate. The desperation is so intense in the Peloton that people are willing to do whatever it takes now to get there. You know, like, especially in the classics, it's like the position is everything. And then you're getting like DSM doing what they did. I mean, I don't want to highlight like what they've done, but I mean, Ugh, I mean, Trek have done it, Ineos have done it, loads of teams have done it. But it's like, when we're actually making those kinds of moves in the peloton and racing like that... Oh,
0: that can, you ex- can you expand on that a little bit for people that don't know what you're talking about?
1: Well, DSM in the, the Ronde van Flanderen actually blocked the road completely. So they all got the full team to the front. And once they got to the full team to the front, well, I think it was on the Molenberg, if I'm correct. And then they slowed it right down so that the people at the back of the peloton were going so slow that eventually they had to, like, unclip. And then once everybody had unclipped, then they decided to accelerate because they're now everyone's starting from absolute zero up a steep climb. Some of them probably might even have to walk up if it's slippery, you know. For me, that's like, it's not really a fair play of cycling. That's not relying on the legs. There's tactics, sure, you know, closing the road or maybe a guy attacks it. But, but to really slow down, the guys actually have to unclip and stop and, I mean… For me, that's like, that's not a fair play thing. And that's why we're getting people doing stupid things like riding on, because you don't want to like miss out. You don't want to be caught out by someone doing something like this. And it's it's down to riders as well. Like, you know, and, and whoever made that call, like I say, it's not the only their team that have done this before. There was last year in, at think it was Frank, one of those races uh, in Germany where uh, Bora did the same tactic. After 30K, blocked the road in Germany completely, made everyone unclip. And that was it. The race was done.
0: The funny thing with DSM was for that, it was like, it was the first time I'd seen DSM this season. I'm like, oh, DSM. It just highlights me how little results they've had this season when I seen them slowing it all down. I was like, that's purely the act of a desperate team.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, I know they're maybe trying to go, well, you know, maybe we can capitalize on it, but it's like, I just think like, Everybody needs to like just just rely on the legs, you know? Like we, we're trying to like we, we're attacking through feed zones. We like you know, it's like it's like quite important now where you put your feed zone in the races because it's like everyone used to feed together, but now that since COVID that's changed. But now it's like, ooh, maybe I, like we feed here earlier than the other teams and then, you know, and the Daniel, we rail the Daniel and then they can maybe miss a feed and then like it's just like the tactics these days, so nuts. Nah, I have a
0: really exciting season of gravel racing planned, some amazing races. I absolutely can't wait for the Migration Gravel Race over in Kenya and Badlands in Spain jumps out as another highlight. But I really don't want to slip on this podcast. I'm not going to. I'm sticking to this six days a week schedule that I've promised. So I needed to find tools to make sure that every hour I have available counts. That's why I'm super happy to partner with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's in the recording studio right beside my desk. If I have an hour free between interviews, I literally just jump on. It's removing all the friction points for me. No more 10 minutes set up on folding legs, banging my knees, trying to get things to connect. It just works seamlessly every single time. The Wattbike Adam, it's also perfect for when I decide to do a Zwift race. It has crisp gear changes, 1% power accuracy, and a max gradient capability of 25%. Even on the steepest climbs over in Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm using like a custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route in Watopia, I'll select more suitable climbing gear ratio. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, I couldn't recommend this one any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever gonna need. You can now get 10% off the Wattbike Adam. Just head on over to whatbike.com. They have a limited time sale running at the moment. So if you've been on the fence and you've been thinking about buying a smart bike for a while, or like me, the turbo trainer was just proving too frustrating, now is an amazing time to buy. Just head on over to whatbike.com. One of the rules uh, I was telling a friend about the other day: the idea of if you're getting dropped it makes no sense to not use the cars, swing out of the cars, sticky bottles. It makes absolutely no sense to not use the cars to the maximum amount you can, even if it's totally illegal. Because if you get caught, you get thrown out of the race. But if you don't get back into the race, you're out of the race anyway. So the punishment is totally pointless. You may as well just do everything you can to get back in, legal or illegal.
1: Yeah, like I think so. There's the other thought. It's like there's so many grey areas. Like you stop for a pee, and then you can get back on by using the cars. And you have a crash, and then but then sometimes this happens in key moments, and then it's like not the same same rules don't apply. So it's like, yeah, it's very, it's a very grey area in cycling. And um, I mean, I've sometimes come back in the cars, dropped on the top of a climb, but then the cars pass us over the top, and then there's a convoy of cars on the downhill, and you you sneak back in through the cars. That's just how it is. It's like, yeah, it's it's like if you on the good side of it, sometimes you do get back in the race. But then, you know, there's often times where guys shouldn't be, they should have been dropped. And there's just a poor decision from the commissaire to allow the cars in that have been able to bring back the second group. Um, but it's the same thing with TV motorbikes. It's just, you know, depends which race you're at. I mean, we when they race sometimes in Spain and Movistar's right in the front, all of a sudden they're speeding the Pelotons up 5K an hour, you know, because they're like, wow. And if you're racing you know, somewhere else, if, if uh, you know, and even in time trials, I mean, you see in time trials when the favorites go out, they've got motorbikes and cars behind them and, you know, VIPs watching them and that's like huge, huge gain. But then you get someone that's like further down the field that's putting in an awesome time and he's got no one, just a lead motorbike that's sitting 300 meters ahead of him. Whereas like if you're one of the favorites, you've got the motorbike right in front of you, five, five 10 meters in front of you filming you, you're getting a massive draft. So there's, yeah, there's so many little things, intricacies. There's, and it, you know, sometimes you're on the good side of it, and sometimes you're not on the good side of it. So it's just like, I mean, cycling is, yeah, it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult one because there's so many different rules, and then there's so many different countries, and there's so many like st- different countries abide by the rules differently. You go to Australia, they're super strict. You know, well, there's no point like. Chance of any of this happening. Then you go somewhere else, and you know, it's a like, bit it's shady. So it's, <laughs> it depends who your judge is. But
0: that's why I think the vlogs like yourself, Dowsett, Me, the vlogs that you guys are doing on YouTube, if anyone hasn't checked out Daryl's YouTube channel, I'll link it in the show notes and stuff. It's brilliant. But They really give people that haven't raced bikes an insight into what it's like. Because most average Joe publics who listen to the podcast, they don't know what the morning of a Tour de France stage is like, what well, your power data or your lack of power data looks like in a Vuelta stage. It's just such a brilliant insight. How has that been? Is it, is it an annoyance having to film? Is it an annoyance to teammates or is it only positive?
1: No, you know what, like I um A lot of the times guys go, jeez, you like kind of do it all by yourself because there's certain guys on the team I know I can have a chat with and a bit of a laugh and put a camera in their face and they're comfortable. But then I have to respect the guys that don't enjoy it. You know, it's not like I can... You know there's a few guys on the team that I can tell like ooh, they, they won't be keen for this, so I kind of just like <laughs> don't show them or I just kind of do something before they get in the bus, or you know so i try and I try and really like keep that side of it because the job is to race my bicycle, it's not to get my youtube channel going and and whatever the group is it's got to work for the group so particularly when i went to uae then we had like dowsett and Rick arbel and everybody like last year and i knew oh this is a crew that's like happy in front of the camera and have a bit of a laugh and we were doing different things but then you can go to like to the ardennes where it's like woodsy fools getting these guys that don't really like you know and rightly so they're they're focusing on winning liege and that they're not here to mess around so you've just got to understand your kind of the group you're in and not be annoying because I think when they see you like, are oh, you're doing your thing, but you're not bagging them or whatever, they they're fine with it, you know? But it it is a little bit challenging. And it's uh it's also not something that's done in the Peloton by riders. So sometimes you there with your camera and then you think like oh, I wonder what these guys actually think. You know, they think like, geez, chicken MP is just clowning around yeah But I'm, you know, I'm like super serious behind the scenes, but then I'm like, well, this is what it is, and this is what my final years of my career are like. And I'm actually going to film it because I, I want to keep these memories. And then I also want to be able to just like bring a little bit of like humor into the team.
0: But the re- actual reality is, and I know sometimes we're in the hardcore cycling bubble, it's a different version of reality. Joe Public, you know, Factor sponsored a podcast and they sponsor your team. Like Joe Public, who goes out and buys a Factor, by and large, they're not the dudes who are racing 1.1 races. They're not the guys racing Kermesses. Most bike sales are driven from, you know, Sportif, Grand Fondos, Cat Fours, Cat Trees. They're the vast, vast bulk of cycling participants that sell bikes. And you get the riders who are super, super serious, and they think uh, top 20 in a Schildapre is a phenomenal result, which it is. But most of those people buying bikes don't even know what Pray is. They don't know that's a bike race, never mind who came 19th in the 2022 edition. But they will tune into a vlog on YouTube and buy a bike as a result of that. I think the idea of using social media as a tool to help the sport just grow and be less reliant on philanthropy and goodwill and more reliant on an actual return on investment model. It needs to move towards that in the next few years and find kind of safe parameters that you can create your vlogs in without the looks of, you know, Fugelsang kind of throwing you the dirty eye and going, oh, he's at this again, because it's just net positive for everyone from what I can see.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's I think it is getting better. Like I think a lot of writers now are starting to go, "Oh, I think as, as soon as you start seeing like guys like Froome and all those guys like doing it, it starts to become like I was chatting with Alex Dasser about, it, it's like starts becoming more acceptable within the peloton, you know? It starts becoming more like, "Oh, okay, well he's doing it like so there must be some value to it or there must there must be a reason behind it." And then people start asking questions like, "Oh, why are you actually doing this?" And he could say, Oh, I do it because, you know, I don't know, I make X amount of YouTube or, 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 or I've sold X amount of bikes for Factor and they love me for it or, or whatever it is. And I think a lot of riders these days are starting to go like, hmm, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I actually can get more value to showing a little bit and giving something back to my sponsors as well because like… You know, a few years ago, there was no way I was going to buy a camera and a thing to to do any anything. And then the other day, I, like I bought an Insta three hundred and sixty camera just to like get some cool shots. You know, so like because then you like want to improve. You know, you know you want to be better. You wanted to make it look cooler for the sponsors for for everything. So, yeah, there there are certain things that you that I that I'm enjoying about it and. I think there's a need for sponsors to get more out of cyclists these days, because you know it'd be interesting to see what that Netflix series is going to be like. On, I'm so keen to see because like when I look at some of the characters there, "That are going to be in this thing." I'm like, Oof, oh, "Oh, I want to see who was in guys... it? I haven't heard that much about it. Well, it's the one before the Tour de, well, during the Tour de France. So uh, I think there were six or seven teams that had given full access. So it'll be interesting to see because some of them were really high up in the, you know, I think Jumbo was one of them maybe. or So it'll be interesting to see what it's like there if it's just talking to management or if, like, the riders are really, like, just kicking back, relaxed, and, you know, giving kind of what you see in the F1 thing, which is, like, you know, that's what got me a little bit interested in F1 racing because I was like, oh, geez, these guys are having a great time. And behind mm-hmm. the scenes, it's, like, super stressful. And then, like, oh, there's some talks of contract. Because in cycling, nobody talks about who earns what, and what's the deal going to be, a deal breaker, or this guy's getting shafted. It's just like, it's all like kept hush-hush till like, like last minute, you know, where it's like F1 kind of opened its world to everybody a little bit, and yeah, it was quite cool to see.
0: I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Chetelis, on the podcast, worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with them personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment, but they're doing it with a social conscience. And that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage and resisting the urge to relocate production like so many competitors to lower cost labor markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. Why does no one talk about contracts? Because I I know the one that we've heard talked about and kind of, I think he's been so wrongly hammered for is Froome's big contract with Israel. Like, Froomey, since I started watching cycling, he's one of the greats. You know, he's won five Tour de France's. Yet, there's Twitter pages of like, is Froomey dropped yet during the tour? And it's like, you know, I have some respect. Like, what's going on with that? Is that frustrating to listen to that? And then kind of following on from that, is there, Froomey's contract was obviously widely debated. Is there kind of people within the team kind of, jealous or envious of those big contracts that get thrown around
1: well look there's i mean there's like two parts to it really because like if Remy gets paid whatever his market value was at that point that was his market value you know and if anybody's chose to sign him on that those amounts there was obviously some kind of a counter offer which was very similar to that so that is his market value whether or not he's he's been able to deliver on that um that's another question but the thing is like, what people forget is like Frumi gave Israel Premier Tech a lot of credibility. You know, Mike Woods came across, I came across, Jakob Foolsgang came, um, Hugo Hall. We've had like Simon Clark. So there there was a huge shift of riders that came across because of Frumi. And that's also part of it. And also whenever you go to the tour, whenever you go anywhere, any other race in the world, there's still people that love Frumi. They hang... All out for him, you know, scream his name. It doesn't matter if you've come there with a previous winner. and If Froome is there, he's still the priority. Um, People forget how how big he is in cycling, you know, even joining the team with Factor and all that kind of stuff. Like sales went up on bikes with Factor. So maybe maybe people go, well, maybe on the road, maybe they don't see the value of him, what he's done in the race, compared to his previous best years. But maybe as a sponsor, maybe they've actually seen like a huge uptick in like, well, this makes... Actually, perfect sense for us in a different way, you know. But also, you get paid on what you who you are, what you've what you bring, and, Free is uh, a brand, you
0: know, and there's very few brands in the sport,
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly, he's a, he, he's, he's, a, he's a massive name in cycling. There's still no one who's rivaled him recently, in you know, I, I believe today, and then we'll obviously surpass him. But I mean, he was the greatest of our generation as a grand tour rider, and uh, you know, it's he also deserves. He deserves part of that, taken out by a bad accident. And does he work hard to get back to where he wants to be? Yes, he's he's up there on altitude. He's working hard. He's not sitting back with uh, some pina coladas and just chilling. You know, He's working He's working his assholes to try and come back. And maybe he's not going to get back to his best level. But also, the, at the same time, cycling had a massive shift after this yeah. COVID and everything. It was cycle. Like,
0: also, on the Pagacha one, like, I'd agree with you. It, it looks probable that Pogaccio will go on and eclipse Frumi. But Froome has, has actually won those races. He actually has won those five tours and he has them in his back pocket. Sure, we could all sit here now and speculate and go, oh, Pogaccio looks like he's going to dominate the next decade. But there was a point when Bernal won his first tour de France where we would have sat here and had that same conversation and say, oh, Bernal's going to be unbeatable over the next decade. So, it is really difficult to forecast what's coming down the road. So this sort of future expected victories, I think people overvalue them a lot. It's what you've done up to this point is a lot more persuasive for sponsors.
1: Yeah, and also like we know, the cycling a lot can happen. You know, uh, what takes one miscalculated thing, and then you know maybe you're you're having to deal with all these injuries, and you come back, and you don't come back the same. You know, I never came back the same after my. After my hip fracture, you know, it was just, it's just one of these things. And you also got to remember, the guy was nearly like dead in a way, you know. Like he was he was fighting for his life, you know, and he's come back and he's racing at the World Tour. And then the, the problem with being so good is that you, you've set the bar so high and people forget like where you've come from, what's happened before that. And, you know, you had a bad accident. Some people don't. But then there's obviously people that go, oh, there's jealousy. Oh, you make so much money and blah, blah, blah. But actually, at the end of the day, you've got to you've got to also like look at the picture in, in a more holistical way to go instead of just like exactly what's happening right now. Like, oh, he got dropped in Rwanda. Oh, he doesn't deserve the money or whatever. It's just, I mean, what Chris has done over the over his career has been magnificent, and whatever he's made from his career is, you know, he's deserved it. So, I think people should just like focus on what they what they actually need to focus on themselves instead of. Um, what everyone's making. If we compare money of people making, we can compare sports as well and say, well, nobody else does 21 days of racing in a row and <laughs> Roland Garros and all these people, how, how much do they make in tennis? I mean, it's like, we can just start there, you know?
0: Take me back to 2013. How big was it to be the first African to pull on a yellow jersey in the Tour de France?
1: No, it was mega. It was, uh, if I look at my, you know, obviously I've had some nice, nice victories and things like that, but I, the yellow jersey is like the holy grail you know um of cycling and besides being like the first african and south african it was more like i joined the club you know i I joined (laughs) like like i joined the club of like proper hitters and like without having the same amount of results or same amounts of expectations as them it was like wow, I've joined this group. I mean, even at that point, like a guy like Cavendish hadn't even had the yellow jersey. I mean, he already had like 30 stage wins by then. And he still hadn't worn the yellow jersey, you know? And like, that's the magnitude and the difference is like everything has to line up. Everything has to go your way. Like there's so many factors that have to go your way to actually have that jersey form, team, all these kinds of things. Like that year, there was no time bonuses in the tour for some reason. It was just a different format. And like, yeah, and it just, it's just kind of stars lined up, and there I was, like in the yellow jersey. And like back home, it went nuts. Um, everyone was wearing yellow on Friday, and it was so cool. Like schools were dressing in yellow, and it just, it was yeah, it was mega. So it was like so cool to see all those things happen. But it's only like a couple of years later when you think like when you're at the tour again and you're there suffering, and you like you see another guy in yellow, and you're like oh, that's that's a big moment, you know, like like. You know, you must enjoy it because it goes so fast and you never know when it's going to come back. Like, when I wore the yellow, I didn't think, oh, gee, probably next year I'll have another go at this. I was kind of like, savour this moment. It was like one of those moments you knew this won't come back. Like, very easily, it's probably never going to come back in your career.
0: And that's an amazing awareness to have though at that time because i think as athletes there's downsides and upsides to being so goal focused within cycling like i chat to people in the business world sometimes and you know they've got a good grasp on key performance indicators and where they should be moving but when you look at cyclists no one has a grasp on goal setting like cyclists you know exactly why you're going out the door today what the goal is from today's session how it fits into the week's plan what the early season targets are, like goals around diet, goals around sports psychology, just goals all over the place. When you get to a moment like that, to have that EQ to go, it might not ever get any better than this. This is the summit of the mountain. After this, I'm walking back down the far side. Sure, your your level's not going to drop huge, but you're at the peak right now. You're on the descent after that. That takes a massive emotional intelligence to understand that.
1: Yeah, I think I think was a I, I was never thinking about it. So like I, I was never like, of sure you can go. Yeah, I dream about wearing like, but like I never thought. Oh, one day I want to wear the yellow because it like just seemed just seemed so far out of out of range of like uh, you have to be a great climber or a sprinter to get it. You know, and and it was just like that was just the year that things just lined up and we were there and it was yeah it just panned up. But I think like I I never like. I never obsessed about it or anything like that. But obviously when, when I had it, I was so caught off guard, I didn't actually know what to do. Like I, I switched off my phone and as I switched it on, it just started ringing again. And then I'd be like, <laughs> wow, this is nuts. Because like people back home were just trying to phone, 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 get a, you know, interview, this, that. I was never ready for that kind of hype or anything like it. But it was fantastic. Like, you know, like I remember once I lost a yellow jersey, <laughs> that up died straight away. It was like whoop. I mean, even the day I still had the yellow and I and I knew I was gonna lose it that day. I didn't know I was gonna lose it to me. I knew I had a good chance of losing a team. Northern African? Yeah. And and I, I like there was no journalist outside the bus set board, even though I had the yellow jersey, there was like you no know, one. I remember going, Oh, so obviously now I'm losing it today. You know, it was just like reality, like straight away, like, okay, we don't have to ask him any questions. We know he's gonna to lose today. So <laughs> like we'll move on. You know, and and for me that was like the The reality straight away, like, okay, cool. You're back down to earth and it's like, yeah, you know, this is the way it is. But
0: it's such a moment, not just for you. It's like, if you think about every touch point you've had on the way up through cycling, like the difficulties, you know, know, I'm going over to race uh, the Amani Project's gravel race in Kenya this year and chatting to Mikel, the organizer there. It's like the difficulties around Visa from bridging the gap from Africa over to Europe, all the different coaches you've had, the people who facilitated your early moves to VC Le Pomme when you were over in France. Like so many people are involved in that moment and they all have a smile on their face that day. So as much as it's a personal amazing achievement, it's a collective amazing achievement for everyone who's had an inter- a positive interaction with you on the way up.
1: For sure. That's like the, you know, it's, its I think it's just like, like, particularly for my family, my dad and, you know, who loves racing and then, you know, my brother and all that kind of stuff. My mom, it was just like everybody who played a part that day felt like touched, I think, you know, in a little way. Like they felt like I was part of that. You know, that, that was like amazing to be a part of. And like even when I got the messages from people, I like made sure like I replied to everybody because I knew like, oh these guys have like, they've also sent me messages on the tough days. You know, like, oh, come yeah. on, mate, you'll get through. So like I really, I was so like tired of just replying, but I, I like made it like a thing to like, make sure like that I value also just saying like even if it was short like just oh cheers thanks and then like later as things quieten down go hey man sorry I, I meant to reply a bit more than cheers thanks but like you know I, I think uh even yeah I think those days you're on cloud nine man you're just you, you you're walking around the Peloton, the guys are patting you on your back. And even like, you know, big stars in the Peloton are kind of coming up to you and saying like congrats, you know, because I think they also like go, oh geez, for, for this guy coming from Africa, for everything, it's it must be huge, you know? And they realized the grat- the, how, how huge it is.
0: I tell you, I wasn't rooting for you in, on Bastille Day in 2019. You were in the break with my compatriot, Roche. And yeah. I was like, I think I can't remember exactly how it panned out, but I think it was you, Tees Benut, and Roach at one point, and then he has managed yeah. to distance him. And obviously, you absolutely rinsed Tees Benut in the sprints coming in the road.
1: Yeah, that was a, man, that was like a... It was so weird because the day before, like, uh, we just got the disc brake bike, and, we, and it, that was, you know, we were having problems with the brakes rubbing, like all the new brake bikes that were coming out during that time. And I remember saying to Whitey, like, "Listen, man, tomorrow's my last shot at the stage. I'm just going to ride my old trusted rim brake bike." And he was like, oh, "Well, do what you need to do. Like, you know, kind of like, well, mate, yeah, okay, if it's going to make you feel better." And then obviously I got in the brake, and it was like. The second move I followed, you know, and it was just like, okay, I hadn't wasted too much energy. I, I like played it smart, I'd gambled the whole day. And then, yeah, then we like slipped away and ah, we were all just everyone was I was just on the right side of it the whole day. Like whenever there was a split, I was in it. I was just there. Like I was just I switched on, but I was calm the whole day. I felt like in control the whole day. And even when the final split went in the crosswind, I was just like there were seven of us left. And I remember it was like Tish, Steven. Tracknik, who else was there? Rochi? there was one more guy. Um, but I remember us just like, yeah, we were just drilling it and we like it split and it almost seemed like, wow, this is this is amazing. But I knew the last climb was gonna be tough. And Tish took off with Rochi, and then it was quite funny. Oh, it was Narson with us. Narson. So Narson and Staven were in front of me on the climb. It was headwind. And I was getting I like got dropped and then they were in between, it was like Rochi, Tish, then Tracknik was like, 50 meters behind, and then there was like Narson and Stoven, another 50 meters. And then I was just like, I just caught up to them. And the two Belgians were talking to each other because I thought it was just the, I think they just thought it was the two of them. And it was into this headwind. And I was just looking down at the Garmin going, okay, 1k left. And the two of them were swapping off. And I thought, they're not asking for a turn. They haven't seen me yet. I just sat (laughs) quietly there. And I remember going like, okay, at 600, I've got to go. And at 600, I went, and I went straight past Tratnik, and then I got across to Rochi and Tish. And then I, I just kept going over the top to keep it going. And I actually forgot that last little drag that was coming where Tish had put in the final attack. And uh, yeah, Tish went, and I was like, oh, Rochi will close it. And then I was like, oh, he's not closing it now. And I thought, well, I'm not dragging him across. So I jumped, and I just made it to Tish. I remember being like on my limit, and Tish was like, oh, come through, come through. I was like, man, I'll come through over the top. And then, uh, yeah, then I pulled through and, yeah, we knew that the guys were coming from behind. But it was just, like, nuts because I was like, yeah, I'm in this, I've, I've got to pull to the line with Tish. Hopefully he gives me a turn. And um, I just remember, like, 2K to go, he just said to me, hey, it's my last turn, eh? And I was like, shit, I'm going <laughs> to have to man up from here to the finish line, you know? And luckily it was downhill. So I pulled until 1K to go and then I kind of, like, floated a bit on the front and took it a bit easier because I knew if he's going to jump me, it'll be okay. I, I should be able to match his acceleration. But um, he tried to hold me on the fence and then I had to back out in the sprint. But, yeah, I, I had good legs that day. So it was just like when I crossed the line, I was, it was like relief. It was like almost like relief. But the, the fact that I pointed to the jersey and things, like to go back to your old point, and that win there was more like that was something that was missing from my results. And something that, like, you know, I'd worn the allergies at the tournament. People were, did you win a stage in the tournament? Oh, I want a team time trial, you know? But then it's not the same. So, you know, at that point, I kind of was like, all right, cool. Like, now I've done it. Everyone is ecstatic for me. And uh, yeah, so it was great.
0: But that Green Edge team seemed special. Like, the atmosphere there seemed special. Like, I've had uh, Whitey on the podcast. I've had. Uh, Sven Tufton, a couple of times, and I've been on his. And like, there was just some characters like Chris Giel Jensen, like, there was just characters all across the team. The atmosphere just looked phenomenal. Like, how motivating was that to be around? And then how hard was that to leave ultimately?
1: Look, it was, yeah, it was special, special years at Green Edge. We had, you know, I love my time there. I had the best moments there. Um, it, it, it was a family to me. It grew, the guys grew on me. I mean, I still, a lot of the guys live here in Girona. We catch up a lot. And yeah, there was also like a team that picked me up from when I was really like, you know, nearly ending my career early on my when I was at NetApp. And it was kind of like NetApp picked me up when I'd lost my contract with uh, Radio Shack because I signed with the failed Pegasus team. Um, but yeah, they, the kind of gave me – I was the last rider that signed for the team. They gave me, like, the shot, like, okay, this is it. You know, you've got a chance to join the team and, like, make sure you you make it count. And I was super chuffed to be able to do that. But, um, yeah, as the years went by, we just we just clicked. Like, I mean, they had faith in me. I had faith in them. It was, like, every race I went to, every staff member I was with, I just – we were just so happy. Also, they understood my family, which was a huge thing, you know, like – uh, they understood where i came from um, also they they really like embraced what i brought to the team cuz i found my place i found my purpose in the team and it was a team like that really valued me for that and uh, i think that's what made me like, like i made myself so accountable in that team and so like i felt this huge responsibility to look after the guys and just having them rely on me to that point and the team backed me and you know i just just everything clicked you know, we, as a team, we just kicked so well.
0: And just to finish up, Daryl, are we going to see you uh, next season in a Cape Epic mountain bike race or what's the plans for next year?
1: Definitely, man. i mean i mean I've already told him I'm coming. You know, I was actually supposed to do it um, two years ago and then I broke because they, they moved the date to October. Because I don't want to do the Cape Epic unfit. That's like I already know going to the Cape Epic unfit. It looks hard. Yeah, it's super hard. Um, so, when they moved it to October because of COVID, I thought, I'll finish with the road season and then I'll go there and do it. But then I broke my pelvis. So then I was like, oh, I can't do it this year. So then I had to take a rain check. And uh, so definitely next year I'm going to be there.
0: Darrell Impey, you're a legend. Thanks for joining me, Daryl. Thank you,
1: man. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling okay okay maybe you won't ever win the tour de france but for most of us this is what cycling is about so let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams so whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist we have a suitable coach for you so why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals